0: Hi, you've reached the Decarb Connect podcast and my name is Alex Cameron. I'm the founder of Decarb Connect. We are taking a little break so we're just going to have two weeks off from new recordings of podcasts and instead of a a new episode what we're doing is highlighting two of our best and most downloaded uh, podcasts. So this week um, reintroducing you all, some of you may have heard it and some of you may not, to our episode with Rob West, the founder and lead analyst at Thunderstead Energy. Rob's session really digs into the economics of decarbonisation and, kind of more specifically than that, looks at the technologies that are already available that can help industry and uh, those reliant on energy intensive operations to to get to net zero quickly so i hope you'll enjoy it and again we're just away for two weeks so don't go anywhere um, because we'll be back soon thanks a lot so our last couple of podcasts have focused more on questions of leadership and also how to deploy technologies at the pilot stage today's a bit different so I'm very pleased to be joined by Rob West, who's the founder of Thunder Said Energy, and we're going to be talking more about the economics of decarbonisation. Rob's firm focuses very much on the energy transition, so it's going to bring, I'm sure, some good viewpoints to this. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So I think you know um, that our mission, my mission at Decarb Connect is that we focus kind of narrowly, I suppose, in on decarbonisation specifically for hard to abate sectors. Just tell me a little bit about uh, Thunderset Energy and and how you came to the focus on energy transition. What was your route into that?
1: Well, I've been a a research analyst uh, for over a decade covering the energy sector. Um, And, you know, talking to investors um, on Wall Street in the City of London, you come to this question about energy transition, and and they all kind of seize up and say, yeah, the way we're going to do this is we're going to pull all our capital out of uh, energy-intensive industries. And, you know, it strikes me that doesn't deliver us an energy transition. That just delivers us, you know, sort of devastating energy and industrial shortage. And if you want to affect change, it's not about finding, you know, ways to pull capital out. It's about finding ways to put capital in. You know, what are the things you can put capital into that are going to earn you a return as an investor or as a company, um, improve your economics, and take CO2 out of the system in the process? And and that's what we do at Dun Set Energy is we try and find those things. Um, We try and help our clients find those things, and we try and back it up with transparent data and models and analysis. Um, And, you know, because as, as we'll come on to, Alex, there's just too much hype and too much um, advertising, you know, in, in this uh, space, where really I think what we need is some cold, steely economic analysis.
0: Yeah, I was. I think I emailed you earlier in the week that I'd really enjoyed your hydrogen note. And I know it will have been a note that not everybody agrees with because it took a note of caution to a lot of the discussion around it. But I can, I can see that approach in the way that you're kind of providing data. It's not to say, no, not ever. It's just saying, okay, but let's to dial it down a bit and actually look at the
1: data. Well, the way I think about it is like this, is you know we're trying to answer the question, how do we meet the world's energy needs and take out all the CO2? If the answer is um, with flying spaghetti monsters, we're going to be excited about flying spaghetti monsters. Um, whatever it is, there's no ax to grind. There's no right answer we're looking for. We're just following the numbers. And when you follow the numbers, um, I just can't get anywhere close on hydrogen. Um, not today, um, not by 2040, not by 2050. Um, and I think this is one of the areas where there's a lot of hype. Um, and I think companies and investors need to really look at the numbers to avoid getting caught up in things they might regret later.
0: Mm. Well, before I take you off on a, a hydrogen rabbit hole, I think that like the thing that we were... Hoping to narrow in on, I was really interested in the work that you've been doing around a roadmap to net zero. So, tell me a little bit about that. But if you could start with what what is that an answer to? So, where did this kind of piece of work originate from? And then, and then tell me a bit about uh, where where you're at with it.
1: Well, I think research has a look over here approach, right? So, um, you start off and you're looking at supercapacitors, and the only way to know the role of supercapacitors in the energy transition is that you know go through um, 10,000 patents in supercapacitors, learn what there is to learn, model what there is to model, and figure out how are you going to use this stuff, what's it going to cost, and where are the best places to put it? Um, So you spend a month looking at supercapacitors, and um, you find, wow, you you can take out a billion tons of CO2, hybridizing... um, Short bursts of energy use, and everything from trucks to elevators. And it's probably going to be better than lithium ion. And there's no rare earths, and they last a million charge-discharge cycles with no degradation. And here are the companies that make them. And um, this is a really interesting, non-obvious opportunity in the energy transition. So you take a topic like this, and then you take another one, then you take another one, and a couple of years later, you've got around a hundred topics. And each one of them, um, you know, what, what we're looking at is if you can score them on various metrics. The first metric is, um, you know, how, how technically ready are these things? I mean, as a company, you can't invest in a, you know, a science project at scale. You, you might spend a lot of time trying to turn it beyond a science project, but it's, it's got to be technically ready for you to put capital into it. Um, second thing is is the economics. You know, you, you've got to know how much it costs and what the returns are. And the third thing is about how much CO2 it takes out of the system. So this is where things get quite interesting, is if we know those those different categories, we can divide number two by number three, and we can arrive at a metric which is called abatement cost. So w- what is the cost per tonne, um, per, per tonne of CO2 that we're taking out of the system every year? And um Adding all of these technologies together, you end up with a cost curve, a cost curve of different abatement options. And um, I I think the results of this are fascinating. So here's the lie of the land, Alex. Today, the energy system is 73,000 terawatt hours per year. Um, That's equivalent to a kitchen toaster running 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for every man, woman, and child on the planet. Um, That energy system emits 40 billion tons of CO2. If we fast forward to 2050, it's going to be something like 120,000 terawatt hours of, of energy globally, um, and it's going to, if we do nothing, emit 80 billion tons of CO2 per year. So we've got to take out 80 billion tons of CO2 per year to get to net zero by 2050. Um, how do you do it? Well, if you add up all these technologies we've looked at, I think you can take out about 150 billion tons of CO2. Um, so you can decarbonize the world twice over. And, and this puts us in a sort of luxurious position, that we don't need to lunge uh, any you know, energy technology that comes our way that can take out carbon. Um, we, we only need the most economical 50% of the total curve. And, and, and to put a number to it, um, the, the sort of cutoff point ends up being about $75 a tonne. So um, you think you could decarbonize the entire world for a CO2 price of $75 a tonne. There's stuff that costs between $100 and $1,000 a tonne. We don't need this stuff. This stuff is going to end up being a bubble. Um, You you don't need to do this stuff in an economic decarbonization. And so you end up with all sorts of questions like, what are the good technologies? What are the ones you really want to get behind? Um, Why do costs matter so much in the transition? And you know, what do we need from policymakers to make this transition as economic and rapid as possible? And those are all um questions I could probably bore you with for a very long time, but I'll stop for now.
0: Well, no, I'm gonna come back to those questions. But um I actually before we do look at those, one there's one thing you said just there about not not needing to lunge at a solution at the moment. And as I as I said before, you know, my my focus on most of the people I speak to are on the kind of industrial side. So they're the I don't know, energy management in steel or cement or strategy or technology teams, whoever it may be that are kind of setting and deploying. And I think there's a real, I get a real sense from them that they they need to lunge at something. I'm not suggesting they are. They need to because of their own investment cycles and how long it takes to actually secure, select, deploy and scale and then roll out further. That There's this real tension between we need to know now and yet we don't have the evidence and so forth. I just wanted, to, you know, I know, I know your perspective, What well, it sounds like the perspective is, is more, we don't need to as investors or, you know, to, to lunge at a solution, but I wondered what your perspective was on, you know, that, that sense from industrials that, oh, a real tension between, I need to know now and, oh, my investment cycles are tricky and, and whatever else, what, what do you make of that? well i think this is where the technology readiness aspect comes into the mix
1: because um there's technologies in our screen like um like nuclear fusion where you know we can go through 30 companies that are doing this but the earliest we think anybody could have something remote to being commercial is about 2028 20, you know we haven't yet generated an energy gain um in so more more energy out than the energy we put in um, we haven't really sustained anything close to an energy gain for more than about 10 milliseconds and you know you go through all these companies and their pathways and look i mean this is 10 years away at least so it's no good as an industrial company to say oh you know we're just going to carry on as normal and just hope that in 10 years time nuclear fusion comes through and saves the day no you, we've got to find stuff we can do now and start um start improving the situation but there is stuff that, that works now. And um, I think um, where where I, I get most excited in the work you know, we do with our clients is, is helping them understand things they can put capital into now that can earn them a return and take CO2 out. And the best example of that is, is nature-based carbon offsets. I mean, um, I think this can do somewhere between 15 and 30 billion tons a year of CO2 abatement for a cost between 3 and $50 per tonne um and there's vast numbers of options in here
0: um so can you just talk me through like if you were going to pick i because i know there's a such a long list of things that fall into that category what what would be the sort of three that you would say the not necessarily that you personally back but which are the ones that have grabbed your interest or that you think on an industrial scale could could be worth looking at
1: well if i look at our, our bridge of how we meet the world's energy needs and take out all the co2 then there's five buckets um so it might be worth running through those five buckets.
0: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. The,
1: the first one is, um, is is the obvious one, which is renewables. Um, you know, On our numbers, renewables will make up about uh, 35% of the global grid by 2050. Um, that means they do just under 20% of all of the total decarbonization. Um, but they really can't do more. And the reason they can't do more is because of their volatility and because of the pace of scaling them up. I mean, we're currently growing renewables at a pace of um, 300 terawatt hours per year in a 70,000 terawatt hour energy system. You know, you do the math and it's going to take 170 years to um, get to 50% of just uh, today's energy mix. Um, the second bucket is coal to gas switching. So you know, if for every megawatt hour of energy that you unlock, um, you're taking out about 60 to 70% of the CO2 by switching from coal to gas. Um, rough numbers, you know, gas power is 0.35 tons of CO2 per megawatt hour, and coal is 0.85 tons of CO2 per megawatt hour. And so that ends up doing a vast amount of the uh, heavy lifting. Um, you might be thinking, uh, but you're still using gas, and gas is still a fossil fuel, so I'm still going to have CO2, and we'll come on to these, uh, these buckets. So the next one is, is next generation carbon capture and storage. Um, this is actually the smallest portion of our, our total bridge but um, there are new reactor designs coming that are going to make it much easier to capture that CO2 and get it in the ground. Um, The fourth bucket is nature-based carbon offsets. This is the largest in our our, our bridge. So this is uh, reforestation and restoring carbon into soils. Um, A sentence I never thought I would say in my life is that soil carbon is one of the most fascinating topics available to mankind. Um, and, and really, just to, just to put it you know, really briefly, if you look at um, all of the C- incremental CO2 that's gone into the atmosphere since 1800, you can make the case that a third of it is from releasing carbon in soils by plowing them up every year in agriculture. In the US, we've gone from 4% organic carbon in our soils to 1%. And that transition culminated in you know this horrible period of history called the Dust Bowl, um, and there's technologies that restore that soil carbon, and with a $30 per ton CO2 price, the numbers of a, car- a corn farmer in the Midwest can make more money farming carbon than farming corn. Um, we'll park that one. The final bucket is, is industrial efficiency, uh, and this is where you know it gets really gritty. This is using energy more efficiently within industry. And we found that, you know, typical industries we've measured going through 30, 40 different technologies, you can take out about 20% of the CO2 for a CO2 price below $75 a ton. Um, and that, that's in that efficiency bucket. So if you add those five together, that gets us to net zero by 2050, while meeting, you know, almost doubling of total energy demand globally. It's amazing stuff.
0: And of those, it's the nature-based ones that, as you were saying, kind of interest you the most. I know, again, as in all things related to energy transition or decarbonisation, there's millions of (laughs) so many different viewpoints and a lot of impassioned viewpoints for and against these. I think that I – I mean, I have to say I haven't talked that much to – uh, any of my industrial audience about the nature-based offsets I know they're doing it but I, I think the little bit of feedback I have was concern about just the logistics the reality of what was available to them so I but I don't know if that's a real concern or just lack of information so I don't know tell me tell me a bit more about that.
1: Well there's a couple of things in here I mean the, the first one is what you know what is your agenda um, so you know our agenda helping our clients is meeting the energy and industrial needs of the world while taking out all the CO2. And if that's your agenda, nature-based solutions are the largest lowest cost opportunity on the entire cost curve. But there are other people I talk to and their agenda is is different and it's we've got to remove all fossil fuels from the energy mix. Um, And, you know, nature-based solutions isn't part of that. You know, nature-based solutions actually says, well, you know, it's going to be cheaper to keep using fossil fuels in some places because of their energy density and the pre-existing infrastructure um, and just offset that CO2. Um, and that's the, the biggest barrier I get. Um, interestingly, the, the people pushing that barrier tend to be in the renewable or hydrogen energy industries, um, which kind of makes you wonder about conflicts of interest. But um, that's, that's uh, another, another story.
0: Well and that exists on every side of it doesn't it as well so you know I think that that's what that's the lens all of us have to look at information through because whether that's the kind of historic discussions with oil and gas. No I I really
1: try and be completely impartial and completely impartial if I look at anything and it works and it's economic it goes in our cost curve and um, you know it comes back to the flying spaghetti monster. (laughs) But that isn't one of the buckets to be clear. To be clear it's it's, it's not, not a bucket. Um, so uh, I think the other one is, is really about how much have we done it at scale. And, and so data we have is you've done about um, 200 million tons of, of carbon offset sales. Um, you know, to put that in perspective, um, the global CCS market is about 40 million tons per year, could be 100 million tons by um, 2030. You know, globally, we're currently at 40 billion tons of CO2. So there's got to be a vast scale up here um but i think the thing to say about it is everything needs to scale up so you know w- with nature based solutions we're scaling up a billion year old concept called a tree um called photosynthesis um which you know has happened at scale in nature um for hundreds of millions of years and um conversely we're scaling up something like green hydrogen we're scaling up something that just has not existed at all um, up until very recently. And so I I don't think scale should count against nature-based solutions. Um, And the third question is about reversal. So, you know, the the fear is that you, you replant a forest, you put carbon back into the soil and then some time goes by and, oh, look, the forest burned down, the soil has been degraded again. Um, But actually this is true for almost every, um, every technology, we've looked at. I mean, um, if you take the data on um, a carbon capture and storage site, you've got to monitor that site for 50 years after you stop injecting to make sure the CO2 hasn't leaked out again. Um, if you're building a, a renewable asset, um, it degrades at between one5 and 2.5% a year from the time you put it in the ground. And after 20 to 30 years, you shut it down. Um, and so, you know, everything has a risk of reversal. And this is why we need to just start doing it and step up doing it and keep stepping up doing it but but I think it's just a sustainable number is, is between 15 and 30 billion tons a year of nature-based solutions and we've got models on, on how we get that
0: so if you were if you were on the other side of all of this you were let's say you were working in a, a cement sector company or steel or something like that and you were tasked with the the nuts and bolts of decarbonizing the company, the core processes, what what would you do? What With your data focus, you know, what would you look for first? What what would you want to know? What, what would your next step be if you were tasked with that? Well, I'd want to know
1: what are the options to take my industrial process, uplift margins, and take out all the CO2. And I'd want to rank them all on a piece of paper, and I'd want to pick the ones that are technically promising, low risk, improve the numbers, take out the CO2, and everyone said, "How do I make those happen?" And um, you know, we, we we've done work um, in this space. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. But we had a client ask us, "What are the different options to decarbonize residential heat?" So we took a, a dozen options, we modelled them. Um, the cheapest option is an efficient gas boiler um, with as as low methane leaks as possible, as efficiently produced and distributed gas as possible offset with nature-based solutions. And for the average home in Europe, um, you could take out all of their household heating CO2 for a cost of about $50 per household per year. Um, everything on is plotted on this cost curve from heat pumps to um, residential solar heaters to district heating, you know, all the way up to the top of the cost curve where, you know, I can build you a green hydrogen heating system for your house. But it's going to cost you twenty-six hundred dollars per household per year, and not, um, you know, not the fifty that you know is the one I want at the bottom of the cost curve. I like to look at it this way because because there's a saying I love about cost curves, which is, you know, no bar of the cost curve means anything except relative to all the other bars. And I think that the real danger, you know, for 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 um, looking at this stuff, if you look at one bar of the cost curve. And you get obsessed by this one bar of the cost curve, and you're like, right, gung-ho, let's make it happen. But if you miss the other bars that are easier, lower cost, you're going to get blown out of the water. And, and so that, that's the sort of analysis that I think is going to help companies to get there is, you know, a really broad look at all the options, narrowing in on the best options and then making those ones happen. Do
0: you know, there was one, one other question that I was going to ask you, which now is slightly out of sync. So I apologize to my listeners and to you but i i also you know you spend your whole life looking at these numbers you're digging into data sets of i mean of all sorts i'm just i have a very basic question for you which is what what do you make of the kind of debate on carbon pricing you know, there's a lot of heat around that you know what what will the price be what should it be what's the most effective way of pricing it what's what's your view on what the price is likely to look like in the next few years and, and what should it look like in the next few years?
1: Well, this is the single most important question all of energy policy. What we've got right now is a snake pit. I mean, um, if you look at the various incentives that exist for energy transition technologies, it's a mess. Um, in the US, we're currently paying as much as $340 per ton um, in subsidies for electric vehicles. We're paying $200 per ton subsidies for renewable diesel. Um, We're paying $35 to $50 a tonne for CO2 capture, and we're paying zero for industrial efficiency technologies and um, nature-based solutions. So the atmosphere doesn't care where the CO2 has come from. Why are we putting policies in place that act as kingmakers for a bunch of our, you know, friends over here and actually stifle the you know decarbonization technologies on the other side of the curve because um you know, now they've got to compete with subsidized incumbents and, and it's craziness, so you know we have found models where if you start with a forty dollars per ton flat c o two price and scale it up to seventy five dollars per ton by twenty thirty five you could decarbonize the entire United States with a level, level playing field. Any technology that you know is going to save c o two effectively is saving you that's CO 2 price between $40 and $75 a tonne. Um, and and, and uh, if, if you build this um, model and actually model it out line by line by line across a very complicated model of the entire US economy, um, you get to net zero by 2050. You actually get there. You know, unlike these um, policies that give tax support to our friends, which just enrich our friends and don't get us there, um, you create about 500,000 jobs. You are not three and a half trillion dollars of new investment by 2050. And um, you do it in a way that improves the United States' industrial competitiveness. Um, This is the single most important aspect of this is is competitiveness. And I'll tell you what keeps me up at night is I look at some of these policies for getting enacted around the developed world right now. And I'm I'm sorry, but they don't make us any more competitive. They make us less competitive. They make our energy prices higher. They make our grids less resilient. Um, Meanwhile, China is currently filing 70% of all of the patents in the world. Um, That's the highest share for any country in history. Um, There's 150 major patent families. China is the leading patent filer in 147 of them, leading with a margin between eight and 80 times in 90% of those categories. And their lead is accelerating in 135 of 150 categories. Um, we're sitting here in developed world passing navel gazing policies that make our industrial complex less competitive. And meanwhile, China is saying, we're going to become the most efficient technologically advanced nation in all of these different categories with 30% of the CO2, 60% of our grid is coal, nod to decarbonization, but we don't really care. And, you know, I, I, I'm sorry if this sounds really vocal and outspoken, but, um, you know, I, Over the next 50 years, I'm terrified of this and what it means. And so this is why we need a flat CO2 price. Um, We need to do our decarbonization in a way that makes companies more economically competitive. And um, I'm just worried that any other option is going to end in disaster.
0: I'm sure you get people hammering in on on that viewpoint, but I I certainly agree. For me, I just don't understand the argument of not investing in new technologies that a vast number of markets around the world are, you know, demanding. Why wouldn't you want to support that as a country or a, you know? Well, I think
1: there's only one answer to that, which is, um, you know, and this is really sad, um, but I've done work with companies not done work, I, I've pitched work and refused work with companies that um, are trying to stifle um, stifle the, the progress, you know, either because they're, they're sitting on very, very large subsidies at the moment and they don't want other people to um, to, to displace them on the cost curve. Or, you know, I, I did work with one company and I was going through the numbers with them and saying, Look, I just can't get there. On your technology, I just can't get the numbers to work. I can't get you anywhere close to competitiveness. And I said, "Well, that, that's that's actually right. Uh, we're not going to push back on your numbers. Our plan is just to lobby. Our plan is just to lobby so hard that we make policymakers force people to use our technology, even though it's more expensive." And, and you know, you hear stuff like this, and um, I don't want to work with companies doing that. Um, so I, I think that this is, this is the challenge of of energy transition: is you know, you open up this big wallet. Um, And you end up with all the sharks coming in to feed on the open wallet. Um, And again, this is the argument for a flat CO2 price is we're not picking favorites. Um, We're not picking the technologies that lobbied the hardest. We're picking the technologies that are most economic and allowing them to scale up unencumbered.
0: I think that's a very neat big full stop moment. Many thanks, Rob. Great to talk to you today. Uh, You were very helpful throughout the kind of development of the event, providing a a different lens and a different viewpoint. So many thanks again. If anyone listening would like more information on what Rob does or perhaps to sign up to the Thundersaid Energy newsletter, go to thundersaidenergy.com and you'll find that link in our podcast notes as well. If you're interested in joining in an episode, uh, maybe coming to talk to me about specific theme or, or your views on industrial decarbonization then get in touch through our website which is decarbconnect.com and last but not least there's a, a silent partner in this podcast who really does their best to work with me to make it as audible and professional as possible and that is Jano Media so I just want to say thank you to everyone there for all the work that they do too speak to you soon bye-bye